support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Bob Salzberg is out today and Joe Wren is co-hosting with me. Today we're talking about insulin prices and we're talking about diabetes, health insurance, the whole gamut. People who suffer from type 1 diabetes have to take insulin regularly to regulate their blood sugar. But a recent study shows as many as a quarter of people who need insulin ration it because it's too expensive. If you've been following the news, you know, Eli Lilly announced this week it would begin offering a generic version of its top-selling insulin drug. Today, we have four guests on the show who are going to help us, guide us through this discussion. We have George Huntley. He's the former national chair of the American Diabetes Association and co-creator and president-elect of the National Diabetes Volunteer Leadership Council. Fran Quigley is joining us by phone. Fran is a professor at IU's McKinney School of Law and an advocate with Faith in Healthcare. Sarah Skipper is joining us in the studio. She's lived with diabetes since she was five years old. And Samita Gupta is an assistant professor of economics at IUPUI. Thank you all for, for joining us today. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thank you. So, Sarah, I would like to, to start with you, and you can just talk a little bit about what does it mean to be living with diabetes and relying on insulin? What's, what's your life like? Um, pretty hectic. <laughs> um, just dealing. I always say that it's a, it's a, a blessing and a curse. Um, I was diagnosed when I was five, um, so I was, you know, I had to be responsible at a very young age. Um, and then also, you know, missing out on the birthday cakes and, and everything mm-hmm. like that. Um, but, you know, I've just grown to adjust. Um, but this this recent issue with the insulin pricing, um, well, it's not a recent issue for me. It, it really took a toll on me in 2008 um, during the recession. Um, that's when my family really, we really started to have a hard time with getting insulin. Um, and so even my freshman and sophomore year of college, I spent that year and a half rationing my doses um, because I, for some reason, kept being denied for Medicaid. And I aged out of my pediatrician, so she wasn't able to send me samples. Um, luckily, I my sister, um, she's also type 1 diabetic. She was living in Virginia in that time, and she was able to mail me samples I mean, not samples, but, you know, some of her prescription, but it took away from her also. Um, And so just this past summer, we had a a really bad incident where my sister went into DKA. Um, We were sharing the same vial of our nighttime insulin. Um, Somehow our wires got crossed. I had already taken my dose. Um, And I left the vial on the counter for her so that she could take hers. Um, but I guess that she didn't realize that I had already taken mine, and so she took half of her dose. So the next morning, she was sick. Um, sugar was over 600. She was green. She was vomiting. Um, she ended up being in the hospital for four days mm-hmm. and had to get, um, like, an IV in her neck. It was She was almost went into a diabetic coma, so... It was just really a scary time, and then also it was just like, wow, why am I working full-time and I have these benefits and I still can't afford my insulin? So that's with your insurance? That's with my insurance. My insulin is over $1,000 mm-hmm. for a 30-day supply, yes. Wow. And George, you've been nodding throughout all of this, and, and this is something you hear quite often. All, all the time, and it's uh, I've been living with type 1s, as we were, Sarah and I were sharing before the show, uh, since 1983. Um, I'm fortunate because I have good insurance, and uh, she's got insurance but is underinsured. Um, the problem is that the, the discounts and the rebates that the insurance plan has negotiated is are not being passed on to her so she's paying full list price at you know three hundred dollars a vial she's using multiple vials right. at a time and uh it should be costing her about sixty eight seventy dollars a vial if the insurance was actually passing on what they've negotiated on their own behalf but it should be for her i want to get a lot more into rebates and list prices yeah. as we 
get into the show here, but I do want to get um, let's get Fran involved in the conversation. And Fran, I know you're an advocate for this issue too. I mean, how have you seen this problem just worsen in the last few years? Um, right. Um, you know, our our group is proud to be um, in partnership, in particular with T1 International, which is a type one diabetes patient group, which refuses to take any pharmaceutical industry foundation and has been uh, found, uh, pharmaceutical industry funding and has been a, a real brave uh, speaker of truth to power on this issue. And, and Sarah is part of a, a, a regional uh, volunteer group that's associated with T1 International and. And yeah, unfortunately, um, I, I do not, or fortunately for me, I do not struggle with, with type 1 the way that uh, Sarah and George do. But, but I, I'm sure just like your listeners, um, lots of folks in my family, lots of folks in my networks are either type 1 or type 2. And um, they, uh, you know, again, I think most of us know people who, like Sarah and her sister, have had to ration um, just because uh, the price is so crazy high. And George mentioned, of course, the insurance companies. Um, bear some responsibility for this, but but oftentimes um, the advocacy uh, we think is is best focused on the manufacturers. The manufacturers do control the list prices. The manufacturers do um, make uh, record-breaking uh, profit margins um, off of uh, uh, medicine, insulin included, but not just insulin. And uh, they are the ones who are are receiving the the greatest uh, financial revenue from the current very, very broken system, which I know we can agree is, is quite, quite broken. Mm-hmm. Samita, can you, can you just explain how, how drugs are priced? Uh, I wish anybody knew. Uh, I think <laughs> one area where we could all benefit would be uh, transparency in the pricing of these drugs. But I definitely want to add a third player to what George and Fran have already mentioned, and those are the pharmacy benefit management agencies. Uh, And they are the negotiators. They are the middlemen between uh, the insurance companies and the health plans and as well as the manufacturers. And no longer with a lot of vertical integration happening between pharmacies as well as insurance companies and the CBMs, it's not obvious that who is pocketing all of these uh, profit margins. So I would add to that and say that even more complicated than what we think it is. And um, nobody knows how these pricing transparency, uh, how these pricing are determined. Uh, the difference between list price and the rebate, um, if, if we can afford to give a rebate. So I applaud Eli Lilly that they have been able to introduce this generic form, which is priced at almost half of what it was. But it also raises some concern about what is the actual cost of manufacturing this if you can suddenly slash the prices by half. Mm-hmm. I do want to add that we invited Eli Lilly to participate in today's conversation, but we didn't hear back from anyone from the company. So I can chime in on a couple of those topics because the uh, also in my day job, because in, in the introduction, I'm actually a volunteer with the NDVLC and the former national chair of the ADA, but I am... Uh, the chief operating officer and chief financial officer of Theorist Group. We are a professional services firm up in the uh, north side of Indianapolis. And in that role, I have been a, the plan administrator of a self-insured health plan for over 20 years. Uh, so I, I know the employer and the health plan design side of this uh, puzzle as well. Um, so what is going on here? Are the manufacturers make the, make the drug? And if, if you have you have high list prices. There are two reasons for high list prices, and you have to find. You got to follow the money at all, at all in all cases. So, in the case of insulin, there there's competition, and so when the list price goes up, there's games playing being played with the pharmacy benefit managers trying to buy market share. If you have a monopoly drug like an EpiPen and, and uh, you know some of the other drugs that are you know that are sold drugs with no with no um, no comp- competitor, that list price is high because the pharmaceutical company just did that for profiteering. In the case of insulin, you've got prop- the, the pharmaceutical companies purchasing market share. So when they go to a, to negotiate with Express Scripts or Caremark or Optum, those are the three PBMs out there, and they own 85% of the U.S. market. So 85% of our drugs are, are gone through those three companies. Uh, they are playing an all-or-nothing negotiating game with the formularies. So if you want on to the Express Scripts formulary, they, you have to provide the highest rebate. It used to be that they were trying to negotiate the lowest net price for the people and, and the insurance company. 
about two, middle of 2000, 2003 is when this became legal. Uh, they started negotiating for a higher rebate, and they are taking a piece of that rebate, and then they're sending the re- rest of the rebate back up to the employer in a self-insured plan or to the insurance company. This was just magic money. This was this black box of money. I've been receiving these rebates as an employer for years. I scratch my own head saying, what the heck is this for? And now it's real, real, real money. They're starting to do it exclusively. In the case of of insulin, over 70% of the list price is a rebate. So only 30% in a $300 vial of insulin, literally, and this is, this is public record because it went to, went to Congress uh, back last summer, um, $68 is what is being retained by Lilly on a $300 vial of insulin. That's what they're taking. Now, it only costs them 5 bucks to make it. You can still have the conversation on that. But, but there's, still six, you know, there's still $232 of rebate and discount that's going back through to the pharmacy benefit manager. They're keeping a slice completely uh, non-transparent, no idea how much that is. Figure 5, 10, whatever percent they're keeping. Then it's going back up to the employer or the insurance company, and they're doing it only so, so that they get exclusive the exclusive um, you know, access to that formulary with, from Express Scripts, Caremark, or whatever. How many times have you gotten a, you know, a letter that says you can no longer have Humalog, you now have to have Novalog because Novo Nordisk outbid Lilly? I get that letter about once a year. So then, Sarah, you're forced to switch your yeah. insulin. And then that that's not always a good thing because me personally, I can tell the difference when I'm using a different type of insulin and I know what works best for me. So it's just like I, I I understand there's options and there's there's other types of insulin, but if this one works with me, my biology, my biochemistry, then I feel that I should there shouldn't be a problem with me accessing that. It's it's my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, today I, on Noon Edition, we're talking about insulin and drug prices. You can join the conversation by giving us a call at one eight one two eight five five. 0811. You can also find us on Twitter at Noon Edition or email at news at indiana publicmedia.org. Samita, were you getting ready to speak? Yeah, and I, I jumped I, on you. I Sorry. Was also, wanting to, no, absolutely. I was uh, wanting to add that uh, besides the thought to, besides the problem that we have faced with PBMs, another thing is that around the same time, we have all these high deductible insurance plans that have been coming yeah. in. And I think they are just making the waters murkier because now people are having to pay the list price of these till the time they may meet these really high deductibles. So I, uh, as a health economist, feel that uh, we are taking the whole problem of the moral hazard where patients might be over-consuming healthcare and pharmaceutical drugs and we are restraining access. So these high-deductible plans are have these uh, adverse consequences which we are not trying to take into the model. Fran, do you have any sense of how much the federal government spends on just insulin in terms of Medicare and Medicaid? Um, you know, I do not have that number uh, in in front of me, Sarah, um, but it, it's not, of course, just the, the federal government. We at the state level in our Medicaid programs um, pay enormous amounts. Mm-hmm. Um, of money on, on on all kinds of prescription medicines, but insulin being very high among them. And so it's, this is a question where all of us have, um, you know, our pocketbook interests, even if we do not um, uh, have the obligation and, and the, the necessity of, of making sure, as, as Sarah and George do, that they have um, insulin uh, each and every day. Um, I would just add, I just, I just think it's, I, I would ask for a bit of caution in, spending too much time and energy um, focusing on the pharmacy benefit managers, the insurance companies, the quote-unquote complexity of of the system, because all of that's true. The pharmacy benefit managers and the insurance companies don't deserve any awards here, that's for sure, and and the system is complex. But I think it's important to recognize the system is complex because it was created to be complex. The, Mm -hmm. The transparency that's lacking that all of us would like to see um, has been resisted by the manufacturers, by the Eli Lilly, Sanofi, and Novo Nordisk, et cetera. And that there has been um, repeated um, analyses time and time again that the, the vast majority of the profits of the current system do go to the manufacturers, 
These are, again, one of the most profitable industries in modern history. So uh, it's a talking point for the pharmaceutical industry to do just that, to point towards the pharmacy benefit managers, point towards the complexity or the insurance companies. Again, none of which is not true, but it's also um, a, a little bit misleading in terms of of what responsibility these manufacturers, um, including our own hometown Eli Lilly and company, uh, bear. And um, it's also really important to, to think of when you when you do hear folks analyzing this, whether it's researchers or whether it's um, patient advocacy groups, and look to see where they're funded, because um, a lot of patient advocacy groups, including very high-profile ones in the, the diabetes world, are have not just small incidents of funding, but millions and millions of dollars of funding from the pharmaceutical companies. No question these folks are speaking from a point of a place of integrity um, subjectively, but, but in, in reality, uh, we all know that funding matters. The pharmaceutical industry knows that funding matters, so we, we need to look a little bit under the hood when you have somebody pointing away from the manufacturers um, and say, why, what, you know, why are we not focusing on the company that actually makes this medicine? that has raised the price a thousand percent in the last 20 years and is making billions and billions of dollars. I, I absolutely do not intend to take light away from the manufacturing companies. No, I think pharmaceutical detailing to physicians' practices to, uh, to try and get on the formularies, the money they spend, I think those are huge amounts. And absolutely, mm -hmm. we definitely should be investigating that. But I, uh, I, the old, my only intention was to point out that these models, uh, these, these structures are becoming more complicated, and with vertical integration, it's becoming harder and harder to see that where all of these pieces fall. But I agree with completely that pharmaceutical companies are definitely uh, guilty here as well. And I'm sorry there to, to jump in, but there's, 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 there's definitely enough enough blame to, sh to share around the, the table here, but the, I think the, the thing is we look at to say, how do you actually fix it? You know, how do you actually fix this? Now, the good news is, again, forgetting, forgetting that I'd like to talk about the generic in a minute, but I really want to talk about um, HHS has proposed reg regulations uh, which would only impact Medicare uh, that would make the rebates illegal effectively. There's a, they would eliminate the safe harbor from the RICO Act on rebates, and uh, so they would effectively have to stop doing because I'll, I'll join a lawsuit to, to make them illegal because they're, they're just wrong. Um, and so that would fix it from a Medicare perspective. The price of insulin would, in theory, go down to close to $70, $75 um, once you do that. Um, Senator Braun from Indiana, our very own Senator Braun, I believe yesterday or today, it was in the paper today, um, has uh, proposed a bill that would do that on the commercial side of the House, which would be also a very good thing because the result of that would be a plummeting of the cost of insulin and a number of other drugs. And this is not just an insulin problem. Insulin is a great litmus test of it because it, the rebates are so egregious in this uh, in this arena that um, you know that you have to take notice. And plus, people are getting sick and dying. Um, as a result of this. So um, those are two things that would actually help fix the problem. Um, and, and the rest of it uh, hopefully can take care of itself. And you just mentioned, uh, Braun, how, how challenging has it been to get to the political side of this and get politicians involved in this type of situation? Well, it, the hard part is, 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 is getting them educated to where, where they can actually fix it. Um, because it's a very difficult thing, and they hear it from everybody out there, but, but, and, and get the noise level up. Uh, so I think we've succeeded in doing that. There's actually a briefing on the state of diabetes to the Congressional Diabetes Caucus on Monday in D.C., which I'll have the privilege of being part of. Um, and um, that's going to be an opportunity to educate the, that entire – that's the largest health caucus in Congress – uh, there's well over 100 members of that, which is exciting. Um, and hopefully we can get them behind this so that we can get the prices down and uh, get them to do things that will actually help patients. Earlier in the show, we mentioned that rationing insulin has become this big problem. And Sarah, you mentioned that, you, that you've done that. Um, exactly what, what does that mean when you're rationing insulin and how is that affecting your health? I mean, it sounds bad. So um, I'm supposed to take... Uh, four to five shots a day. Um, when I was in school rationing, I was taking two to three, three at the most. 
Um, when you're type 1 diabetic, you cannot go without insulin. So me going without my regular dose that I'm supposed to take, it took a tremendous toll on my body. I lost like 20 pounds. Um, I was, when I did make it to class, um, I was asleep or I spent most of the time in the bathroom. My sugars were high a lot um, because I didn't have enough insulin to, to take to correct for my sugars. Or if I was eating, um, I didn't have enough insulin to take for, for my meals. So I was also rationing my meals. Um, so I was lethargic all the time. It was I, I was just really sick. And then it also took like a mental toll because it's just like I know what the I know what this can lead up to. So it's just like, you know, it, is this my last shot? So it, it was it was really bad. Well, this new generic that Eli Lilly was started talking about this week. Will that help you? Well, I feel that it'll help some. Um, it'll um, it'll benefit people who really don't have access to insulin, like without insurance. Um, I still have benefits through my employer, so there could be no change in the price at all. So I, I mean, I would have to see. We're we're not really sure if it'll make a big effect, but I know that the people that it will impact the most are are people who have trouble with getting insurance. Um. I just want to ask Fran if, if you can. What sort of impact do you see this having? Is this a big step forward? This generic? Um, I think it's a small step forward. To be to be honest, um, it's uh, it's certainly always welcome when there's going to be a reduced price for someone. Um, and as, as Sarah pointed out, that uh, this is not going to impact directly a lot of folks who have um, strong insurance plans now. But for folks who are uninsured um, and having to um, you know, go and, and pay out of the pocket, then, then if this helps them, that's something to, to be happy about. But in reality, um, you know, it, it, the price that's being suggested is a price that is, you know, 2,500% more than what it costs to manufacture that medicine by the company that is going to be selling it for that price. It is a price that's four or five times higher than folks are paying in other countries for the very same medicine that is being manufactured you know, here in Indianapolis. Um, people in Indianapolis pay, even after this discount, four or five times higher than people are paying in Canada, Japan, UK, et cetera. Um, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very small step in the right direction, so we should be happy about the small step. But I do think it, it points to something George mentioned is in terms of, uh, you know, who's going to fix this. And I do think that, that our elected officials are starting to hear um, about this deep, deep frustration that that uh, people in the communities, their their constituents are having, and so we do see some some very significant proposals. Some of the proposals by the the Trump administration, and, and George mentioned a couple of them, or, or Senator Braun's proposal, those are you know potentially helpful in, in small uh, measures. But there's some very significant proposals out there that reflect the idea that most people think of healthcare as a human right, not a a commodity to be. To, uh, to be maximized for as much corporate profit as possible. So there's discussions of the fact that since we, the people, are, are funding a lot of the research or funding uh, all the research at the early stage for these medicines, maybe we shouldn't be handing over monopoly patents uh, to companies. Maybe we shouldn't be letting them extend those patents quite so much. Um, Senator Sanders, uh, Representative Khanna, um, Senator... Um, Warren and others have some very bold proposals out there to essentially say that you, uh, the private companies, are no longer going to be able to raise these prices. And even Senator Warren, one of her proposals would be to create an office of drug manufacturing and have, um, you know, we the people have the government actually manufacture and sell these medicines. So if it does cost $5 a vial to uh, manufacture insulin, then we should be having medicine that costs a tiny fraction of what um, Sarah and George and others are having to pay now. We are. So are, are you still there, Samita? Well, maybe we'll get Samita back. It sounds like she was getting ready to say something. Actually, let's go ahead and we're gonna we're gonna take a short break today on Noon Edition. We're discussing the high costs of insulin. You can join the conversation. You can ask questions or comments by calling in at eight one two eight five five zero eight one one or tweeting at us at Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
From the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. Today we're talking about insulin, we're talking about out-of-pocket prices, we're talking about insurance, we're talking about diabetes. We have four fantastic guests today. We have George Huntley, the former national chair of the American Diabetes Association, Fran Quigley, a professor at IU's McKinney School of Law and advocate with faith and healthcare. Sarah Skipper, she's lived with diabetes since she was five years old. And Samita Gupta, an assistant professor of economics at IUPUI. You can join us today by calling 812-855-0811 or tweeting us at Noon Edition. I think, Samita, are you back with us? Yes, I am. Sorry about that uh, disruption. So I, uh, the, I was just wanting to say that we are somehow contradicting ourselves when we say that a manufacturer has reduced the list price by half, but somebody like Sarah is not going to see any benefit from it. We need to think, why is that? Who are the middlemen who stop that list price from impacting what somebody like Sarah is paying for it? So it's not just the list price. So I'm curious, and Fran, you were talking a lot about transparency. So why is it that we don't understand more of what's happening here? We don't understand more of what's happening here because the, the, the pharmaceutical uh, corporations have resisted that mightily. Um, actually, several different state uh, legislatures have passed uh, laws t- uh, to mandate that the actual manufacturing costs, the actual marketing costs, by some, by some measures, uh, these companies are spending more money on marketing than they are actually spending on research and development. Um, that, that this information be provided so that we do know what the actual costs are, what the profits are um, uh, for these companies. The companies have responded by lobbying uh, uh, remarkably aggressively against it um, at the state legislative level and, of course, at the federal level. And then when the legislation has passed, they have challenged it in court. Um, so we don't know because that information has been, um, has been intentionally shielded from the public. And um, when there have been several different patient-led actions at Eli Lilly and company here in Indianapolis, the request from the patient community led by T1 International has been very clear. Um, please tell us what it does cost you to manufacture a vial of insulin. Please tell us what it does, uh, what your profit uh, amount is on that vial of insulin, because that information is um, not disclosed. And, of course, that information is at the crux of the affordability issue. So we were talking earlier how a lot of these drug manufacturers were called recently to testify before Congress about what they were doing to help reduce some of the prices and try to keep things in check. I want to go to a clip that we have. This is Jennifer Taubert, and she's the executive vice president, worldwide chairman of Johnson & Johnson Pharmaceuticals. First, while Medicare Part D is working for many seniors and has been effective in containing costs, We believe an out-of-pocket cap is a needed protection. Second, in Medicare Part B, we've proposed options that would allow Medicare to continue to achieve negotiated savings through market competition while reducing costs. And third, we support rebate reforms that ensure patients benefit from the negotiated rebates and discounts, $150 billion in total in 2017 alone. And as a result, have patients see lower out-of-pocket costs at the pharmacy. That was Jennifer Taubert from Johnson & Johnson talking before Congress. And a lot of these executives are recently called to talk about what what they are going to do to try to rein in some of these costs. From your perspective, George, what do you think that people should be doing, employers, so that folks like Sarah, even though we're seeing some of these reforms, 
she's still going to be paying the same things. Yeah, we actually, uh, NDVLC, we give, we have a, um, a package and a, a mission that we go out to employers with to educate them on their health plan design to protect the patient from the, the, somebody who is insured to protect the patient and the participant from uh, list price. So the thing that we you know, maintain is, is the employer has to treat the pharmacy benefit manager as a vendor. Um, they're, they're the only ones with the economic leverage to stop this particular part of the problem because they're the ones buying from the pharmacy benefit managers. The, 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 the manu- pharmaceutical companies are selling to them, and they're in, a, they're in an all-or-nothing game. Now, they ceded control years ago, but they can't fix it themselves at this point. Um, that's why you actually hear the J&J person saying, yeah, please get rebate reforms because they've ceded control. They couldn't solve it if they wanted to. Um, they, when, they're, when they're playing a generic game, he's, they, Lilly has gone out and created a brand new product. They registered it with the FDA, even though it's not a new product at all. And it's the same, man, same drug, same manufacturer, same process, but it's going to have a different label on it. And they're doing that to get around their pharmacy benefit manager contracts. Um, so that they can then launch this with a new list price and, quote, reset the game. The problem, to Sarah's point, is she may not have access to it in an insured game because it's not on the formulary. So now they have to figure out whether they can get that drug on the formulary. And I would imagine that Express Scripts, Caremark, and and Optum will be hard-pressed to say no, given how much the court of public opinion is, is putting out on this, but that's a real issue. But our, our presentation to employers is if you treat that pharmacy benefit manager like a vendor, you can dictate in your contract with them that they pass through these rebates at point of sale. If they do that, then your people are getting the benefit of all of the negotiations that have happened on your and their behalf. And the problem is that it, employers don't know they have to do that. Some of the larger ones do. We've given this presentation to General Motors, General Electric, UPS, Deloitte. I was with uh, Boeing this past week, and uh, we were just with Marriott um, giving this presentation to their HR departments. And some of them get it, and some of them are not aware that they actually need to negotiate this into their plans. And it's a very important thing because employers can fix this, uh, at least protect their own people. It won't help the uninsured, but we can help, it can help minimize the underinsured issue that we've got. Okay. And obviously today we're talking a lot about insulin, but Samita, is this this is this the same complicated structure with many drugs? Oh, pretty much everything. So as long as it's a prescription drug, it's something you're running through your insurance. You have your HSA card involved. You are talking about all prescription drugs. Uh, yes, it's the exact same structure, the same amount of pharmaceutical detailing, and the lack of transparency. I wanted to ask uh, Sarah about other items that may come that you, I don't know if they are out of pocket or not, that you have to pay for with having to take insulin. Um, I have to pay for my syringes. Um, I have to pay for alcohol swabs. Um, I don't have to pay for my test strips. Luckily, I can get that free through my job. Um, I have to pay... um, I pay for ketone strips. I have to pay. Um, I have to pay for like glucose tablets, just in case if my sugar goes low, to have those type of things. Um, so it's just an it's a lot of added costs. Um, but I don't have an issue with the generic brand of of the supplies. Now the supplies, like my syringes, my alcohol swabs, those are reasonably priced. But if I still have to pay or is it, are expected to pay $1,000 a month for the, the insulin that I need to use with these supplies, it's just, it just doesn't make sense. It's like I'd much rather pay for the supplies, and, I mean, I right. have to figure it out with the insulin. Have you broken down, I'm sure you have, just how much you end up paying per vial of insulin that you use? Well, I just I know for the for a thirty day supply of my fast acting insulin, um, the the Humalog, that's like four hundred dollars for a thirty day supply, and then for my long acting insulin, um, it's like five hundred dollars after your insurance. After my insurance. Okay, and Fran, I think you were saying earlier. Did you say three dollars? Is that what you were saying in terms of how much each vial actually Five. costs? Five. Yeah, there's been there's been research by um, Andrew Hill, uh, reported in uh, the BMJ, British formerly British Medical Journal, this past year, 
suggesting, yeah, the range is somewhere around, you know, four to six dollars, about five dollars a vial to, um, uh, to manufacture. And, and to be honest, in, in our view, um, that means that we, we need to look back to the manufacturers. There's lots of dysfunction and complexity in, in the system. Um, much of it created by the manufacturers as, as we've done the drug companies as we've talked about. But I think if, if I may, just to, I don't want to be impolite here, but I think it's important if we talk about who's responsible for um, this crisis that Sarah and George and others are living through and then our communities are living through and then our, our public budgets are, are enduring. I mean, I think it's important that we as advocates or experts, you know, let your listeners know um, whether, you know, we have any uh, relationships or skin in the game. And so I will say that our organization, Faith and Healthcare, does not take any pharmaceutical industry funding, um, and that our partner, uh, T1 International, and I know that's Sarah Skipper's um, uh, uh, volunteer uh, affiliation as well, uh, refuses to take any pharmaceutical industry funding. And, and I think that we should, we should all self-disclose that during this and any other public conversation when we talk about whether who and uh, and what are going to be the solutions to this problem. George, how is your organization I'll be happy funded? to answer that question. So yes, we are absolutely, we are funded by industry. There's no question about that. Uh, I was a volunteer with the American Diabetes Association. American Diabetes Association is funded by industry. Uh, they have other, other funding as well. JDRF is funded by industry. They have other funding as well. I'm on the board of Children with Diabetes. We do work for families with diabetes um, and, and educate family members, uh, parents, grandparents, et cetera. We get funding from industry as well. All of them get funded by industry. T1D International is, is one of the, the few that are not, don't take any industry money. I would submit that the earlier conversation of my integrity and my, you know, I am a person with diabetes. My mission is to prevent and cure diabetes. My mission is to make all all supplies and drugs accessible to people and I am going forth with this um, to the best of my ability and the best way I know how and trying to make the difference that I can and I think we are making a difference the fact that we're seeing uh, rules and regulations from HHS the the law dropped by uh, Senator Braun uh, the conversation that's happening in the in the media and the marketplace today that Fran and, and Sarah and the groups all of our groups together even though he may not like how we're going about it. Uh, honestly, advocacy happens by making as much noise as possible. Mm -hmm. I'm curious when we're talking about making significant change and Congress getting involved, how powerful are the lobbyists in this conversation? I hope they're um, getting less, but I would say lobbyists are powerful. It's a fact of life in this world. Um, so I, I don't, I don't have an answer to are they getting any less, any less uh, meaningful out there. Fran, you may have an opinion, and Samita, I, I, I wish I knew. Fran, yeah, I, I appreciate that, Georgia. I uh, go ahead, Samita, if you'd like to go first. No, um, I, I am an academic and I have no, I'm getting no funding, no grant funding, nothing from the industry. So this is purely my academic observations and what I know about the pharmaceutical pricing. And uh, I agree, we need to find out who's to be blamed, but I have a feeling there are many people to be blamed. I agree that it is the manufacturer, it is the PBMs, it is the employers who are who do not realize that they have more power than they think, and uh, and maybe as individuals we need to be advocates as well. So I definitely think that we are all to be blamed, and um, lobbyists play a very important role in everything, including this. That's my understanding. And Fran. It is absolutely the case, and, and I do, do think we can all agree on that. And, and but of course, not all lobbyists and not all um, uh, influencers on the system are created equal. The, the pharmaceutical industry, very understandably, from from their perspective, um, invests enormously in lobbying and campaign finance contributions. And in many years, it is the top industry in terms of how much uh, money is spent, and it, we're talking in millions and millions and millions of dollars in uh, lobbying expenses from both sides of the aisle. They, they have Democrat lobbyists and Republican lobbyists both, and, and in campaign contributions, again, on both sides of the aisle. So um, it's an industry that knows very well that the way the law is written is, is an existential question to their continued um, crazy high profit margins. And so they do invest um, heavily in influencing 
um, the system as it is. And, and that's, again, the reason that we do things like uh, have government-funded research and hand over monopoly patents to a private company is because those companies have effectively lobbied to create the rules we have now, and they're, they're lobbying very hard to resist some of, some of the real important reforms that are being proposed now. We're talking about noon. We're talking about insulin on today's noon edition. Our number eight five five zero eight one one, or you can find us on Twitter at noon edition. I do want to remind our listeners that we did reach out to Eli Lilly to participate in today's conversation, but they did not get back to us in regards to our invitation. So they are not joining us today. Um, Samita, something that drug companies often say is that it takes a lot of money to produce these drugs and they're taking on a huge amount of risk each time they try to get a, a drug to market. Can you talk a little bit about just the time and the research that goes into producing a, a yes, drug. most definitely. It's, uh, you know, the gestation period of starting investigating a drug to doing all sorts of animal trials and then human trials and all sorts of FDA approvals. It's really long. Also, it's a shot in the dark. You might start investigating and spending on R&D for 10 drugs, and maybe one out of them is going to eventually result in something that's marketable. So there is no doubt about the fact that R&D is risky and expensive in both time and money. Uh, and then there is this whole discussion about the whole manufacturing and then how long do you need to receive rents on this for prescription for it to make it worthwhile? Once again, we don't know. And we don't know because they are not forced to disclose to us that what exactly do their accounting books look like. So uh, I wish that we knew that how many years does it take to invest in every drug and what should be the pricing of it, but we do not. I, at least I'm not aware of literature which reveals this. So I know insulin has been around since the 1920s, is that correct? Yeah, not 1921. So have yeah. they been changing the formula or, or what's what's been happening to improve the drug or... Yeah, the, the, the drugs, the, you know, certainly the drugs have uh, come a long way from 1921. Um, when I was diagnosed in 1983 with type 1, I was on uh, NPH and regular, um, and then a 70-30 then a blend of NPH. And, and that, that is a, sh- a medium-acting drug. I would take mm-hmm. a shot at 7.30 in the morning, and then it was a, a roulette game as to when it would go off. Uh, so lunch would either be at 11.30 or 1. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you were active in the morning, you would go low at 11.30, even though you had a 12 o'clock lunch, lunch appointment. You had to stop and eat right then and there because you had this wave of insulin hitting you. And it was uh, 10 of the most miserable years of my life was on that drug. Uh, but I was alive, so it was far better than not being alive. Uh, but it was uh, not uh, not a good not a good um, life. My wife would agree with that. She didn't like me at that time, <laughs> or not like didn't like me as much. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, the um, the more smooth uh, current analogs are out there um, with uh, the Humalog, the Novalogs, the Lantises, which are the the long acting insulins that are that don't peak. So she, you know, Sarah, I believe you're, you're taking a shot at night of a lamp, probably Lantus, and that is, a, you know, that really doesn't peak. It goes in for 24 hours and gives you a background rate, um, and then every time she would eat and I eat, I have to inject or I use it. I actually use an insulin pump, and for any carbohydrate I consume, I use, a, you know, a shot for every 12 carbs. I'd use one unit of, of insulin for that. So um, it's a lot easier to regulate, and it's a lot uh, smoother. Um, you know, just experience, mm-hmm. not to say that living with type 1 is a smooth experience even on these drugs. So it is mm-hmm. a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour um, thing that you go through. You saw me test my blood earlier. I had a very nice score. I was proud to show you a 106. <laughs> um, I was smiling because it's rare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, Sarah, you don't, you don't, do you have, like, the latest, are you able to get the latest medications? No. No. Um, I mean, I'm able to get um Humalog, I've received this from donations. Yeah. I mean, I've the re- the reason why I'm still alive is through samples from my doctor, donations from people in my neighborhood. Um, I've been on my local news, so um, just people that know my family members have given them insulin. I just had a lady from New York. Uh, she just emailed me a FedEx tracking number because she mm-hmm. saw me and my sister's story on NBC Nightly News, and she sent me some insulin like so just basically off the generosity and and just people understanding that this 
like I just trying to live a decent life. So that's I mean that's how I'm able to get it. So is the key to this, I mean, would you say it's a domino effect? Does something need to happen that pushes everything else down the road? I mean, because there's just so many moving parts to to all of this. Well, I think, again, if the, the current regulation and the, the, the law by Senator Braun will be a big help, uh, that does not solve each and every equation out there by any stretch. Um, you know, you should have access to, you know, your, your coverage. The fact that you're, if you if you are in fact insured by anybody and they're not covering your basic needs for diabetes, that is insane. That's part of our pitch to the employers. I mean, it's the most high-risk population on their health plan. Mm-hmm. And one in, one in three people with diabetes, adults, are on insulin, which means a sizable number of type 2s are also on insulin. We were talking, Sarah and I are both type 1s. And we don't take it, we die. But if, if, if type 2s, you can, you can survive without it, but it really exacerbates your situation because you're, you're on it for a reason. And as an employer, if you're, it's so much cheaper for them to take the drug than it is to pay for the complication. And so that's the presentation we make for them. And the other pitch that we say is, is look, it, the one thing you know about a diabetic on your health plan is they are going to meet their deductible, even a high one, 100% of the time. So inflating the cost of their drug so they can meet it early doesn't save you a thing. You're just turning around and paying out a claim you otherwise wouldn't have paid. And that, that tends to wake them up. That's usually the, the piece of the equation where they say, oh, I'm really not saving anything because they, they tell me they're taking these rebates and they are using it to keep the premiums down for the rest of their population. But uh, there's nothing left. They're not really doing that. And Sarah, I know some of these complications... Um can even start, I mean, you're young, but they, some of these things can start young in, in your life, like blindness. Yeah. Um, I have cataracts. I'm 23 years old. Uh-huh. And you have cataracts. And I have cataracts. I have cataracts. Um, I have uh, vitamin D deficiency. I have endometriosis. So it's just having type 1 diabetes alone and auto, autoimmune disease is just like an, a, a door that's wide open for anything else to come in. And so not being able to take care of the main thing it makes these other things it's just so difficult like I haven't been I can't tell you the last time I've had like a full paycheck so and that also is frustrating because um you assume how much I make on paper that's why you you feel that I'm able to afford my medicine but that's not even the case if I can't even make it to work to make that money that you have on your paper that my income should be so yeah we got uh, somebody called and would like to know about manufacturers influencing doctors to prescribe their drugs, which may be more expensive. Ask about man- uh, the influence Absolutely. manufacturers. Yeah. Uh, uh, pharmaceutical detailing to doctors' offices, especially meal plans, is a done thing. Um, I, I would have to see. I mean. More than 90% of physicians' offices have, have meal plans, and it's unbelievable that how much money is spent. We are in the middle of an opioid epidemic because of some of these things, but that's for another day. But uh, uh, definitely, uh, I, don't, I don't know. My understanding is that insulin cannot be on one of those, right? I mean, this has to be, this is absolutely necessary. It's not something which is a matter of judgment that the patient needs it or not. Yeah, my my read on that would be that the um, at this point insulin it tends to be a, a one or another drug on the formulary, so it's not that they could sway Sarah or I to another drug because it's the only one my formulary covers. Right. Um, what's really happening that really gets back to non medical switching, which is a serious problem and after effect of all of this formulary battles, where you get switched and it's not just insulin, but insulin happens all the darn time. Um, and I, the endocrinologist practices, uh, the stat I have is 1,500 hours a year for the average endo practice is spent appealing drug rejections. That's almost one full-time employee just to appeal non-medical switching. It's crazy. It's part of, it's, it's, an, it's another piece of this whole sick equation that we have in our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. We talked to a endocrinologist from Franciscan Health this week, and that's what he was saying is that that has become a huge part of his job is just trying to figure out how to help people get an insulin that they can afford. And he said, obviously, he's put in a very 
terrible position trying to be an advocate but then go through all these hoops. Um, another person is asking what the difference is between type 1 and type 2. We don't have a lot of time left, but George can Sure. Type 1 is an autoimmune disease where your uh, system attacks the, the uh, insulin-making cells in the pancreas, so you must take insulin to replace that so that you can, you can live. Uh, type 2 it typically happens later in life, although more teenagers are getting it today than, than type 1, frankly. Um, and it tends to be about 90% of people with diabetes are type 2. You are insulin resistant. You are making insulin, but you're not using it effectively. Um, and they, you know, this is where diet and exercise can help uh, often, or if you catch it early on, can help reduce that. In both types of diabetes, you have high blood sugar. So the commonality is high blood sugar. And then the commonality are the, the complications and symptoms of that. As you know, So both types, if you have high blood sugar, you have complications, cataracts, laser surgery needed. Um, it's uh, heart, heart attack, stroke, amputations, those kinds of things, what happened for the consequence of high blood sugar. It's just a matter of how you got there. Okay. We're almost out of time. But, Sarah, I want to give you the last word. If um, pharmaceutical companies, insurance, if, if they're listening today, what is, what is your message to them? We need a resolution and not Band-Aids. We need it's, we, everybody. It's insulin for all, not insulin for some. Um, and this is a serious issue, and people don't deserve to lose their life or put their lives on the line because they can't afford their life-sustaining medicine. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. That's all the time we have. Thank you all for being here today. A great panel, George Huntley, Fran Quigley, Sarah Skipper, and also Samita Gupta. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you you to co-host Joe Wren, to producers Binta Boutier, Patrick McGurr, and Azra Jalen, and engineer Mike Paskash. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports in print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device.